James chapter 5. Let me, uh, I'll introduce the book one more time this morning uh, as we finish the book. And then Wednesday evening we'll move on in the schedule. If you've got one, I believe First Peter is next. Uh, so we'll start that on Wednesday evening. But he, uh, the book of James, uh, as you know from our discussion earlier, I believe is written by James, who is the brother of our Lord, uh, the half-brother of our Lord, I suppose, who, uh, at least during his earthly ministry, just like the other brothers, did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And so they challenged him during that earthly ministry even to go to Jerusalem and make himself known, but it wasn't time for that to happen, so it, it didn't happen. Uh, but obviously, after the resurrection, something changed with him, and he understood uh, who his brother now really was. And ultimately, James would become one of the leaders, one of the elders in the church in Jerusalem, uh, and he writes this book. This is probably the first book written in the New Testament, and it's written in this time frame of after the the persecution from Saul of Tarsus causes the Christians to scatter from Jerusalem, but before... Uh, the gospel becomes so uh, so to the Gentiles. So really before Saul became so powerful in, or became Paul, before he became so powerful in teaching the Gentiles. Because that's when, after that, it was more Gentile uh, obedience to the gospel than Jews. This book is written when it's still primarily Jewish. And so the people that are involved who have been scattered, as, as he introduces the book, he talks about those that were scattered. And as they were scattered, they obviously faced great struggles. First place, they had the trauma of the persecution in Jerusalem. And then they had to uproot their family and move to a place where they could be safe, or at least thought they could be safe. But they've lost careers. Uh, they've lost homes. They've left family behind. Those who did not obey the gospel, they've got to leave them behind, or they're not going to go with them anyway. And as they get to these new locations, now all of a sudden there's letters going out and Saul is going other places to get them. So you can imagine the... Uh, the turmoil in their lives. On top of that, where they would journey to as they scattered from Jerusalem would be Jewish territory. And so the people where they went were going to be no more receptive to the gospel than anywhere else. And so they still had persecution and suffering. So he starts the book talking about their trials and their struggles and how they needed to uh, deal with them in a proper way that would allow them to grow, to become stronger, to gain wisdom. But he says that's not going to happen unless you get to this place where you actually take what God tells you to become and become it. Because, see, the easy thing to do is try to blend in, right? If you blend in with everybody, if you don't stand out, then you're not going to suffer anymore. You're not going to get persecution. The devil doesn't go after you so bad when he's already got you, right? So if they blend in, then they, they don't stand out. They don't get so much of a struggle. And so what he challenges them is you just can't blend in. Now, obviously, they don't need to go out and invite persecution but they don't need to act like everybody else and pretend that they're not who they are that would be like hiding the light under that bushel right so he challenges them to actually do what they uh what they read in the scriptures or what they learn from god to do and then in chapter two he deals with this struggle with faith what it means to actually live your faith and he talks about how you, how to show your faith you show it by the life that you're living and so again he's challenging them as to what it means to actually do what God's Word says. He talks about how that applies in chapter 3 to, uh, to uh, uh, prejudices or respective persons, how that they needed to treat each other and others properly because of who they are. All of this book is about, a, about because of who they are. These are practical things to help them uh, be who they're supposed to be. So as we went into chapter 4, if you were here on Wednesday night, what we talked about was this battle that each of them was having, 
And it was kind of highlighted because of the pressures that were coming from around them. But the battle's real in all of our lives. And that is we have a part of us who really wants to do uh, what God wants us to do, live like God wants us to live. But we also have temptation that at times can can be a problem for us. And if we stay in the middle, if we try to stay there in the middle and hang on to a little bit of both, we're never going to be successful. And so chapter 4 is dealing with that battle in their lives and how the devil uses that to, to hurt us and tempt us. And, and the struggle that they primarily had with that was the fact, again, they've lost everything. And so they want to they want to gain some of that back, and it's easy to, to, to kind of rein in your Christianity and act like somebody else so you can gain that back, right? So he's challenging them not to do that. Chapter 5 now uh, is carrying on a similar context, but it's got... A, a little bit of divided, I mean, it's, it's not, the whole chapter is not a same context. Uh, I guess if you wanted to give it a context, he'd be talking about how faith causes you to pray. Uh, but these are different prayer applications, I guess. And he's going to start in the beginning. Let me, let me say this before I start reading. Uh, the book of Revelation has a portion of it where, and we'll get to this soon, uh, where there are those who have died for their faith. And they're pictured by John as souls under the altar. And they're crying out. And what they're crying out is, how long? And the point that's being made through that is, these people are saying, look what Rome has done to us. Look what they have done to Christianity. How long before God steps in and causes this to all end? Right? Punishes them for their, their sins. Well, it, it, it's, that's not a new thing. I mean, all throughout time, people who are trying to be faithful to God have struggled with that. Job asked, why is it that the, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And that, that was the first book written in the Old Testament. So you have this, from the beginning to the end, this struggle about, you know, why is it that people get away with what they get away with in the world, and it looks like they do great, and then we struggle or whatever happens because of our faith, especially them, all the things that they've lost. And so the challenge again is, you know, why can't I just grab a little bit of that, like Achan? Why can't I just grab a little bit of that? So as he gets into chapter 5 now, he's going to start by showing why. He's not writing to uh, the, the wicked who are around them, but he is writing about them so that the Christians, don't, they know not to follow that path. Now, before we read about them, I want you to remember who was around the Christian, the Jewish Christians who was powerful and wealthy and oppressive. Who was that? early what pharisees were the top of the line they were the top of the line remember how the jews were kind of divided up and the ones who were leading from the front primarily was the pharisees and they had that power and they had that wealth and they didn't want to give that up and that's primarily why they rejected jesus it wasn't because he he wasn't fulfilling prophecy it was because he wasn't treating them the way they thought they ought to be treated they wanted the power to stay with them. He should have shown up and told them how great they were. And then they'd have been on his side. Okay, so now we read of people like that. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Now, understand, and he's going to say this as he continues on. He's not just talking about being wealthy. If he, if he was, we're all in trouble. Because as it concerns the rest of the world, we're all wealthy compared to much of the world so what he's writing about is not about wealth what he's writing about is the way they got it and so he identifies them as the rich and he says you need to weep but that's not the way it works on our earth is it 
What do you think will solve all your problems? Isn't it always a little more money? You know, it's, if, I had, if I had more money, then I could do this or I could do that. I could live here and I could drive that. And Isn't that, that all of our problems would be solved if we just had a little more money? The problem is all of that is temporary. The only thing that solves your problems beyond today is God. And so these people, as you'll see in a minute, had given up God. Very much like the parable of the rich man, you know, who talked about the, the, how much he had and his barns are all full and he doesn't know what to do, so he's going to build more. And God says, you're a fool. It wasn't because he was wealthy. It wasn't because he was building more barns. It was because he forgot about God. And so these guys, you're going to see, have actually rejected God to gain more. You know, if you could just gain... What if you could gain $100 million if you just acted like a heathen for a week? Would you do it? It would be tempting, wouldn't it, though? And that's what these people did. Keep reading. Yes. That's, that's, that's true. <laughs> Verse 2. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Now stop just a second. That's interesting the way this is worded because you remember uh, the teaching that Jesus uh, presented was to lay up your treasures in heaven, right? Where neither moth nor rust, corrosion, all those things don't affect you. But he said, don't lay up your treasure here. And so you read that and you think that's what he's saying. He's saying... They, they, they shouldn't have laid it up here because eventually it's going to be gone and then they're not going to have that eternal. But I see it worded a little bit differently than the way Jesus was teaching it. What I see coming from James here is that their riches are already corrupted. Their wealth is already corrupted. It's already a problem for them. And the reason is, is it became their God. I mean, we could apply this in many, many ways more than wealth. I mean, how many people will give up their faith for, uh, for a spouse? How many people will give up their faith for a child? How many people will give up their faith for wealth? Whatever it is that we focus on that comes between us and God is, is what's corrupting us. And so as he, as he writes this to these people, he says to them, you, you may be wealthy and you may be powerful and you may be influential, but all that stuff has already corrupted you so that no matter what it looks like, you're not in a place where the judgment's going to be a great thing for you. Remember when Jesus was talking about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and one of the things that he said was, they look really good, but inside they're dead. He didn't say they look really good, but inside they're going to die. He said they're dead. So this, all these things that these people have that makes them, makes them feel comfortable and successful and content and all of that, it has already taken them to a place where they're not right for God no matter, or with God no matter what it looks like. Keep reading. Indeed, now we see uh, why. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now, that's not the Lord of Sabbath. We hear that a few times in the scripture. This means Lord of hosts. Now, for those of you who haven't been through this whole chronological study, some of this you may not 
you may not already know or remember. We're going to start again in, I don't know, a month or two, three months, whatever it is. So maybe you'll get it the next time. But anyway, if you, if you know what was happening with Israel as they were going through uh, the, the divided kingdom period especially, you know that one of the things that kept happening was they kept taking God's laws and they would follow what they wanted to follow it. But then when they would get a problem where it was they didn't want to follow it, they just do whatever they wanted to do. And they divided up and they had Jeroboam leading in the north and he changes everything about the law. So none of them are following God the way he wants them to follow them. Do you know why then when he sent them into captivity he chose to do it for 70 years? Anybody remember that? It's close. It was a year. Yeah, it was a year. Yeah, they were supposed to. Remember they worked for six days of a week, right? And then the seventh day was the Sabbath. That's what Sabbath means, seven. What did they do on the Sabbath? They're supposed to rest. Did they do that? Okay, and then they're supposed, to, they're supposed to take care of the fields and get their crops for six years. And then what are they supposed to do on the seventh? Yeah, they're supposed to rest. So you got that happening every Saturday. And then you got it happening every seventh year where the crops are supposed to, the fields are supposed to rest. And then seven sevens, which is 49, right? So the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee included all of those things, but it included more. It was supposed to be these people that had found themselves in so much trouble that they had lost land or they had, uh, they had sold themselves to serve somebody else to cover a debt or whatever. Those people were supposed to go free. They were supposed to get their land back. This is an inheritance thing that was important to God. So for all of these years, what had happened is they had not been given God his seventh year. And that added up. So for 490 years, they had been failing the Jubilee. They had been failing the sabbatical year. They had been failing the Sabbath. Why? Yeah. See, here's what happens. The way God designed it was, and it started way out in the wilderness. Uh, how, many, how many days of the week would there be manna on the ground? Six. Okay. What if on Monday you went out and you gathered up some leftovers for tomorrow? What happened to it? It's going to spoil overnight. Well, what happens on Friday if you go and gather up leftovers? It stays. It'll, it'll make it tomorrow because tomorrow there's not going to be any out there, right? So they're being taught to trust in God. And that worked the same way with their crops. If they worked six years on their crops, they would have enough to make it through a year without working. And God would provide for them. But think about it. What if you did work that seventh year? If you already got enough, what's the seventh year do for you? Yeah, that's gravy. That's the extra. So if you figured that out and decided, you know what? I don't know that I'm going to let the land rest this year. I don't know that I'm going to let my servants go home this year. I'm not going to let it go back. And what happened is they became powerful and wealthy because of it. And so the Israelites went into captivity for 70 years. But that didn't end when they came back. They still were not faithful to God when they, when they came back. And so as James is writing, what he's writing about is these people who have, who have rejected everything that these Jewish Christians know what the other Jews are like. These people who have rejected God and fattened themselves just to make themselves satisfied, they're already apart from God and they're going to suffer the consequences. Now, why it was so important to these Christians is because... Anybody ever been tempted to, like, cut off a leg or something? No? 
You don't see any benefit in it, right? Okay, what if somebody said, you're not going to live if you don't cut off your leg? Now I'm going to cut off my leg, right? I hope they'll put me to sleep and take it off that way, but we'll get it done, right? Because we see the benefit. All right, if these people as Christians are being tempted and they look out here and see these people that have become powerful and wealthy and they think, they're doing all right. Life's going great for them and I'm struggling. They're tempted to go with them. And what he's saying to them is, if you go with them, eventually you're going to lose. You don't win. Keep reading. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. You know, I don't know how many people have raised cattle or seen them raised or maybe you've raised one for your own purposes or whatever we've done that a few times uh what you do is you feed them different if you're wanting it for yourself you feed them different you put them out there and you feed them certain feed to get them to a certain age and then right at the end you change it you really kind of fatten them up and get the fat scattered throughout them and it makes it better meat when you have it processed if you didn't know that look it up it's good stuff uh so you get good beef okay but if you're selling it you want weight so you got to make sure their weight is good because the weight's going to bring you more money, right? Okay, what these guys are saying is they have made so much money, what it's done is it's fattened them up. And it's fattened them up for slaughter, just like you would do with the cattle. You fatten it up, you slaughter it. All right, That's what God is saying to these wealthy people. All you've done is you've made yourself fattened for the, for the slaughter. And the way you did it is you took advantage of everybody else. Anybody, you ever heard people talk about climbing the ladder? You step on whoever you step on to get up that ladder. That's the way they've done. And God says, I know. And he's telling these Jewish Christians, I know. And here's the end result of that. All right, keep reading. There's a connecting word. Does your Bible have little headings in it, some of you? Does yours have a heading that changes right there? Yeah, between those verses, there's a changing. But you know, if you've been in my class, those connecting words matter, right? So the word therefore that's in the next verse, that matters. That heading that somebody put in there is not in a great place. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? That's going to keep going, but let me, let me get us where we are. Therefore is the conclusion word, isn't it? Since what is true is these people that have been so prosperous by hurting everybody else are going to end up in a place that is uh, away from God. They're already corrupted. They're going to end up being judged by God. Therefore, don't act like them. And beyond that, be patient. Why? Huh? Because it's not going to last. They can endure. It's not going to last. What they have will last. So they've got to be patient. They've got to endure. Just like the farmer. Wouldn't it be great if you had even a garden? or we'll use A farmer obviously is what he uses. But we can use a garden. simple. Wouldn't it be great if you went out and you planted your crops that, you know, one day. And then like three days later you've got vegetables. Wouldn't it be awesome? That's how our weeds grew when we had a garden. They'd be up in three days. Yep, yeah, but that's not the way it works, is it? 
you have to put the seed in the ground and it has to be watered over and over and it, it takes root and then it begins to develop. But what happens if you get all that early rain and, and, it, and it starts growing well and then all of a sudden you hit it July and it doesn't get any rain? It's going to die, isn't it? So you've got to be patient and endure through all of what it takes to get through the process to get the end result. And so what he's doing is he's applying to them and saying, you need to be patient as what you're going through, just like the farmer, because you can't... Sure, they'd love for it to be over tomorrow, but God was doing something. What's coming to the nation of, Jew, uh, of the Jews? Anybody know in this, in this time frame what was coming? Yeah. yeah, in AD 70, Titus uh, is going to surround... The, the Roman commander is going to surround the city of Jerusalem, cut it off, and ultimately destroy it. And in the process, destroy all their records. All their wealth is going to be taken away. It's going to be used to build the, the uh, Colosseum in Rome. Uh, all of what was Jewish is gone. Okay, what he's telling them is, be patient. I know what's going on, and they're going to get what's coming to them. But there's more that has to happen between now. It's got to rain some more. Between now and then. Keep reading. Uh, And I'm going to talk about that phrase. Coming of the Lord in just a second. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now when Jesus and the apostles. Or the disciples rather. The ones before. uh, Before the day of Pentecost. When they would go out and they would preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did that mean? But what did the at hand part mean? Yeah, you can reach it, right? And that's why Jesus in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1 would look out over the crowd and say, there are some of you who are standing here who will not die until you see the kingdom come with power. It's because it was reachable. They were really close to it happening. But on the other hand, if something is not at hand, it's far off, right? Okay, people... People don't understand settings and context a lot of times when we look at the Bible and we see phrases or words and we automatically put them in a place that we've seen them in before because that's where they were before and then we assume it means something that in this context it doesn't mean. If, if I tell you the coming of the Lord is happening, what do you think of? Yeah, Jesus' second, second coming, right? The end of the world and the second coming. The problem is that was never taught in scriptures as being at hand. But what was taught multiple times is judgments. God coming in judgment. It happened when he came in judgment on Israel. It happened when he came in judgment on Judah. It happened when he came in judgment on the Babylonians. And it kept going. And so what he says here is he's coming in judgment on the Jews. And that was what the prophecy was all along anyway, wasn't it? They would get a new name and those people that had been his would be rejected. And that's actually what Paul was saying as he went out and he said, you know, went to, the, went to the Jews and they rejected me, so we turned to the Gentiles. Isn't that how he defended himself when he went to the council where James was in Acts chapter 15? Yeah. So the point here is not the second coming. What he's saying is be patient because it's getting close to the time where I'm going to bring judgment on Judaism. And how many Jews are going to persecute Christianities after that? None. They're done. All right, keep reading. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Have you ever noticed, you ever heard the saying, uh, well, I don't remember how it, was, how it went, so I better not use it. 
Uh, you ever notice how you can have a bad day at work and you go home and then all of a sudden you're angry and harsh on the family at home? Has that ever happened to you? Nobody ever does that? Short with them, right? Your patience is short. And it's not because they've done anything wrong, is it? It's because you had a bad day somewhere else, right? And so the people that were close to you ended up getting the brunt of that because, well, that's where you went after it all happened, right? Okay, have you ever noticed that when, when life gets difficult uh, in the church, when the church has struggles that you attack each other over silly things? You know, my life's not going the way it ought to, so I, I start doing things like thinking, well, Brother so-and-so over there, he really thinks he's something. I mean, look at him. He, he dresses like that. The way, even the way he walks makes him think he's important. We do that. We do that. I hear people. Some of you have told me, so-and-so's looking at me this way. I said, they're not looking at you that way. That's what you're thinking. But it's what happens when we struggle. So as these people are being persecuted, where, where can they release their pressure? They're supposed to be able to give it to God, but, well, we don't always do that very well, do we? So what happens is the people closest to them, which would be family and their brethren, right? So he's saying, don't be like that. Don't lash out at each other because of what's going on around you. And here's why. The judge is standing at the door. Again, we have this analogy of it being close, right? But on top of that is he can now see. Not that he couldn't before, but... They're supposed to realize that. He's here. He can see. He knows what's going on. Don't turn into the people that you're trying to avoid. All right, keep going. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end attended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Stop there just a second. What do they know about the prophets? What was the jo- a prophet's job? Yeah. Deliver a message from God to the people, right? And that could be, depending on when it happened, you know, is a different type of message, right? Samuel is, Samuel is the first prophet and things are not, they're not terrible at that time. They're not great, but they're not terrible. So his message is a little different than, say, Jeremiah, who's the weeping prophet. I mean, the reason he's called the weeping prophet is because he's looking at Jerusalem in his prophecy and seeing it destroyed. That is a little different than what uh, Samuel was dealing with, wasn't it? Okay, well, what happened when, when a prophet was sent by God? You know, Amos. Does anybody know who, what Amos was? Who he was? Huh? He, he was. I call him a fig-picking prophet. He was, a, he was not a prophet. He was a sheep herder and a tender of sycamore fruit. But he was in the south. And God sent him from the south to the north to tell them how wicked they were and that they were going to go into captivity. Well, how well did that go over? Not at all, did it? So did life get better for him when they told him you go home and you go home and get paid by your own people? And he said, look, I didn't choose to do this. God gave me this job. I was not the, I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm not even a prophet until God sent me to do this. So it's not that life got better for him, it got harder. But he had to do what God was leading him to do, right? So what James now is writing to the brethren is, as you're going through all of this, to help you realize what happens with patience, just think back to what all these prophets went through. Look at all the things that they suffered. And the reason they did it is because God's always right. 
And God had a plan. And in fact, he said, look at Job. Job wasn't even a prophet. He was a patriarch over his family. And look at everything he went, he went through. And I want to show you a word real quick before I go further with that. If you look in verse 11, I don't know what your version reads, but the New King James says, you've heard the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. The word there is actually teleos. It means purpose. Not like the end of a race, but a purpose, which is more like a goal. All right? And God's goal was and is from the very beginning. When you get to Genesis chapter 3 and sin enters the world and he comes to Adam and Eve and all of a sudden you had this proclamation of punishment, consequences. What was God's goal? Just to hurt people? To make life harder for people? What was it? It was to bring about a Messiah who would save people. That's what Romans chapter 8 and verse 20 says. The world was subject to death and decay that we might have hope. Who's gonna, how is Jesus going to die for the sins of the people if there's no death? So the consequences were because of God's mercy and grace, and that's what he wanted. So even in the account of Job, with everything that Job went through, and by the way, everything that he lost, you get to the end, and everything he gets back is double what he lost. I know the number of children is not double, but the first children who died are still alive in eternity. So it's a double number. All right? And what God says is not that God put him through that to get to the end, but rather that as he went through that, God intended fully to bring about his blessings. So as Satan put him through that, he made it to the end of it, faithful to God, and God blessed him. So if they, in the same way, will deal with what they're dealing with and get through it to the end, God wants to bless you. Is that not true of us as well? All right, verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, unless you fall into judgment. And we read that. I know in the past we've read that and people have been afraid to go be a, a, a witness in a court because they make you hold up your hand and say, and, and people used to do this. I know it. They say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? And they'll say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, because I can't say the word swear. Because that's what he said there, right? Except for there's a context. And the context, if you remember, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he talked about this. One of the things that had happened with these leaders of the Jews is they had become very good at getting their way. And one of the ways in which they would do that is they would make a promise or swear an oath, and they would base it on something. Remember when you were a kid and you, you'd make a promise and somebody say, do you swear on a stack of Bibles? Because if you got your hand on a Bible, it's, it's, it's you know, you got to do it, right? You can't put your hand on a Bible and lie, right? Okay, but if you, if you don't swear on a stack of Bibles, then you had your fingers crossed. You got away with it, right? You say, I promised to do this. Well, you didn't do it. Well, I had my fingers crossed. So you figure out how to lie and not be lying, at least justifying it in your own mind. Well, the Jews had done that. They thought there were certain things that they would swear upon, like God and the altar and all that, and then they got to keep that kind of stuff. But if they swore by something that was earthly, well, they didn't have to keep that. Okay? Here's the way that applies. And I know we all want to answer this the right way, so we probably will. I don't know whether it would go that way if we were really in it. It's not an easy world for Christians today. In the last six weeks, there have been three attacks on religious institutions during their periods of worship. Three. All right, what if somebody came in here and individually asked you, are you a Christian or not? 
and you had already seen it happen to six or seven people. They said they were a Christian. They got shot. And somebody did say they weren't, but they're alive. So by the time he gets to you, what are you thinking? <laughs> the temptation is, I could serve God if I'm alive. So I'll tell that just a little bit of untruth, and I'll survive. What was happening with these Jewish Christians is if they just didn't live like a Christian around everybody else, they wouldn't suffer so much. And so they just kind of cover up and they would speak and do things like everybody else. Like Peter, as he's standing around that fire that night that Jesus is on trial. And the third person comes up and says, look, I know who you are. I've seen you. And he says, no, no. In fact, the text says he swears. That's not saying he said cuss words. That's saying he made an oath. That he wasn't who they thought he was. That's what we do under pressure. And so he's saying don't do that. Be honest with yourself and be honest with others and be honest with God. Uh, verse 13. Now we're going to change context here just a little bit. Still talking about praying. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That makes sense. That's the, that's the best time for your prayer life to be strong. Right? When life's going good, it's easy to forget. But when you're suffering, you don't forget, do you? So if you're suffering, pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. That's pretty easy too, right? You're happy when things are cheerful. What I want to tell you is that word suffering is not the word that we would use it for. It doesn't mean you're sick and going to the doctor. It doesn't mean you're dealing with cancer or something like that. The word actually means they're weak. And the context and that word means that what he's saying is not when you're suffering some kind of a physical ailment, but rather when you're weak spiritually. Well, that's not an easy time to pray, is it? When you're weak spiritually, that's not the easy time to go to God. But that's what he wants us to do. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So pray, praise, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Again, it's this word of of, of weakness let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord now a couple things that i would highlight here and it doesn't apply necessarily to this congregation because we have a, a unique situation here but uh everybody always calls the preacher when they're when they're sick right and that's a physical sickness when they're physically sick they always call the preacher uh or they think that the preacher automatically know that they were sick uh, by osmosis. Well, this text puts responsibility on two, two people and none of them are the preacher. One of them is the elders who are responsible to assist, right? Comfort. But two is the person that's going through it because they're the ones responsible to reach out. So when you say, well, I was sick and nobody talked to me, you got it backwards. Okay. But that's just application. Let's talk about what was happening here. Again, this word sickness is spiritual weakness. Well, we're certainly not going to call the preacher when we're spiritually weak, right? When we're struggling with sin, we're not going to call the preacher for that. But what he says is, call the elders and let them pray for you. Your weaknesses, they will pray for you. And he talks about this oil. And we, we, we think that it's a physical sickness, so we talk about ancient oils rubbing on people to make them well. And that's fine if you want to do that. But what happened with the elders was there was an oil of anointing, wasn't it? And it was an approval, wasn't it? So when David is anointed as the king over Saul, remember though Samuel pours the oil over his head and anoints him, what it's doing is acceptance and approval. And so what he's saying here from the elders that they will pray for you, and what will happen is that will help you gain the strength 
to not be so weak because the elders are supporting you. And keep reading. See how it goes further. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if, if he has committed sin, he'll be forgiven. Well, sin here is not... Again, we're not talking about physical, right? So if the leaders of the church are praying for you, you are strengthened, and they can also pray for your sins to be forgiven. You know why? You know why during the invitation that the elders are always up here? It used to not be that way. In most places, it's not that way. It's the preacher. You know why the elders are? Because we're the ones supposed to be praying for you. When you show up here and say, look, I've been struggling, I've been suffering, the elders ought to be the one praying for you, shouldn't they? Now, all of us should, but it should be led by somewhere. That's the point he's making here. Strengthen each other. Trust in each other. Use each other. Verse 16. This is the hardest one. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual or effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That's the hard one. I might be able to tell people when I'm struggling. I might be able to tell the elders when I'm struggling. Have them pray for me. But to go to my close brethren and say, look, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's why I'm dealing with it. I need you to help me. That's not so easy, is it? And this is not a public thing. This is a people thing. Get together. Help each other. Now, I'm telling you, the only way you can re- truly do that is to really be a family. That's the only way. You know your siblings are not perfect, don't you? And you love them anyway, don't you? But in the church, we all pretend that we're perfect. So if somebody falls, then we say, wow, I never saw that coming. He's just so good. Never has a problem. I never, never thought he'd have a problem. Well, that's because we weren't a family. If we were a family, we would get it. So he challenges them to be a family and trust each other. And by the way, we use that verse, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much to talk about the power of prayer. And that's true. That's great. But he's talking about it from the sense of your struggles. Anybody have a struggle in their life that they beat one time and it went away forever? Doesn't happen that way, does it? Now what happens is, you, you, you struggle with it, and you struggle with it, and you struggle with it, and you get stronger, and you get better, and before long, you get to a place where you're not as weak anymore, right? I'll give you an example from my life. There was a time when I was younger, my language was not what it ought to be. It was pretty bad, okay? It's not today, but it didn't end overnight. It didn't stop a, a week later. Maybe it would improve, but there would, be, there would be situations that would cause it to come back, Right? But eventually you get to the place where that's not your weakness anymore. Well, you do that with each other. You do it together. All right, we've got to keep going. I'm almost out of time. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That means he was human. He wasn't a superhero. Nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, you know the account. You know that Ahab was a wicked king. Elijah prays for no rain, and it doesn't ha- they have three and a half years of no rain, right? And then when he runs into Ahab later, Ahab and Elijah run together, and Ahab calls him the troubler of Israel, right? And he says, no, it's not me, it's you. And then he prayed for rain again. But I want you to get this. There's something, maybe it ought to be a sermon instead of just a quick little point in the class. But when he prayed for rain uh, to stop, and it stopped, he also had to go through it. He went through three and a half years of that same drought didn't he so trust in god but follow god no matter what you go through 
All right, last part. Uh, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. Is it possible to be lost once you're saved? That's what that verse just said, wasn't it? If you turn from the truth and somebody saves them, you know, it's hard to go to somebody and say, look, you better fix this. And you know why? Because they're going to say, who are you to judge me? You're not perfect, right? And so we don't, want, we don't want to hurt their feelings or we don't want to be critical or we don't want to be judged by them. And so we just kind of tiptoe around everything. And what he's saying is if you, if you love somebody enough to go tell them the truth, what you're doing is it may hurt. Rip a Band-Aid off, it hurts, doesn't it? But what will happen is you're actually saving them. Okay, we're out of time. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning to study your word. And we're so thankful for this book of James and the practical way in which it challenges us to live. Help us, Father, to be the family that you want us to be so that together uh, we can complete this journey successfully, bringing each other along when we struggle and when we're weak. Help us, Father, most of all, to always trust in you and have the patience to endure. Forgive us when we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.